Sydney Students' Union, The Scoop, on Sunday. Hello and welcome to The Scoop on Sunday. My name is Thomas Copeland. On tonight's show, a bombshell story from The Scoop makes the front page of the Belfast Telegraph. Queen's University fined students more than £50,000 last year for breaching COVID rules off campus. Data revealed by a Freedom of Information request submitted by The Scoop show that in total, the university disciplined more than 500 students for off-campus COVID breaches. We'll be picking apart that story at the top of tonight's show. A row about free speech and transphobia at the University of Sussex rolls on. I'll be looking at the issues at the heart of that debate with a trans student here at Queen's. A new report has revealed that 40% of PhD students in the UK could be at high risk of suicide. What on earth is causing this mental health crisis? I'll be asking that very question to a PhD candidate at Ulster University. Plus, a look through some of the stories brought to you by The Scoop online newspaper this week and a chat with the UK's new Nursing Student of the Year from right here at Queen's. All of that to come. This is The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for being with us. Okay, let's start this week's show with an exclusive story brought to you by The Scoop and featured on the front page of the Belfast Telegraph this week. Queen's University fined students more than £50,000 last year for breaching COVID-19 rules off campus. Many of you might remember that following media reports of widespread COVID breaches in the Holy Lands area in September 2020, the university introduced new off-campus student conduct regulations. Well, new data released via Freedom of Information requests submitted by us here at The Scoop showed that in total, the university disciplined more than 500 students for off-campus COVID breaches between September 2020 and June 2021. Under the regulations, the PSNI notified Queen's when a student had broken COVID restrictions while off campus, and the student was automatically suspended from the university without appeal for up to 14 days. Queen's then investigated and reprimanded the students, the most common punishments being fines, written warnings, and extended suspensions. Queen's suspended 15 students for between three months and a year, expelled one student, and the fines issued by Queen's ranged from £30 all the way up to £500, all of which had to be paid on top of those handed directly to students by the PSNI. These regulations were revoked earlier this month, just under a year after their implementation. I'm joined now by Chloe Ferguson, SU Campaigns and Engagements Officer. Uh, Chloe, thank you very much for being with us. Thomas, thank you so much for having me. I suppose I want to separate our conversation out a little bit. The first part, we should talk about this COVID policy that has now been revoked earlier this month, but it was obviously in place for the majority of the pandemic, at least while students were uh, at university. And then let's talk after that about the wider issue of off-campus discipline in general. So I suppose, first of all, let's talk about the off-campus COVID policy. Your reaction uh, to that story from The Scoop on on Monday's Belfast Telegraph. So disappointingly, I'm not surprised. Um, And first of all, I just want to say congratulations to the Scoop. Um, That is a massive piece of work that you guys have been able to do to really bring to light um, some of the issues that students have really been having to deal with this year. Um, As student officers in the the Students' Union, whether that's our advice SU team or whether that is just us, you know, communicating with students, giving support. And that unfortunately, that is something that we saw time and time again last year, and it really skyrocketed to our priority list in terms of giving students support. 
It really highlights um, a power play that Queen's love to push. Um, it highlights that students have been put into a really unfortunate position in society that no other members of society have been put into. Um, and it really just highlights again um, kind of the unfairness and the immorality of doing such a monetary and financial um, penalty as well for something that students should have their right to a private life over. I suppose so, Chloe. I mean, the, the the regulations were introduced for a reason. It was because students were breaking the rules. I mean, we can dance around it all we want, but we all saw it up in September 2020, huge parties taking place in the Holy Lands, and we can dance around exactly who was responsible uh, as much as we want. I mean, in Monday's article, there was a quote from Ray Farley, chairman of the Holy Land Regeneration Association. I'll read it to you and get your thoughts on it. He said, residents were seeing large groups of students on the street and were then afraid of the spread of infection in local shops. Surely that's unacceptable. So the students union would never say that a student should be, particularly around the COVID regulations, that they should be breaking public health guidelines. What our issue comes into is the role of the university in, in this um, communication. We, we fully believe that when a student comes to the university, they should still have some of their rights. They should still have all of their rights and apologies. Um, they should be able to kind of go about their lives and have that separated um, from the university. When we talk about off-campus discipline behavior, you know, we're not talking about sexual misconduct. We're not talking about criminal behavior. We're talking about anti-social disturbance, what you highlighted in your article. Um, and for that to kind of be investigated fully, we believe that that should be on the onus of um, Belfast City Council, or the PSNI, and um, because then that can often end up with um, students in more um, student populated areas like the Holy Land, like Stromilis, like Lisburn Road, and um, to be more unfairly punished according to others um, or against other students who maybe live in Derry or Bangor or um, Hollywood, you know, anywhere really that any students are commuting from, I mean, they wouldn't be treated the same. Mm -hmm. I suppose that's an important point to raise, Chloe. The way that the system worked is that the PSNI had to let Queen's know when they thought they had caught a student breaching COVID. So that means, of course, if, if the PSNI were, were in the Holy Lands area or around Stramolis Road or Lisburn, they're more likely to pass on those names. But students could have been having a party in Oma um, uh, and, 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 and this, you know, that data wouldn't have been passed on. I suppose, Chloe, though, you know, during a pandemic, does the university not have a public responsibility? You at the SU certainly are constantly decrying the, the dangers of marketization of third level education. Universities shouldn't be profit driven businesses. You know, th th these are these are or are, are words that are similar to the kind of things you're often saying, be that on climate issues or housing issues. So here we are in a situation where the university has an opportunity to really step up as a member of the local community, put some of its resources uh, and power in, into position to try to encourage students to obey the rules for the good of their community. And you're criticizing them for doing so. I'm not criticizing them for encouraging students to follow public health guidance. I think as a member of the wider student community, as a member as, a, as someone who lives in Northern Ireland, um, I completely respect the university's decision to encourage students to follow public health guidance, but that's what it should be. It should be strongly encouraging um, and it, should, it is not the responsibility of the university to punish students when they're already being punished for the first time by Belfast City Council and PSNI, because as you mentioned in your opening kind of spiel, that students are actually already being punished once, so they're actually being punished twice, which no other member in society has been. And it's really interesting when you mention both of the PSNI, um, you know, maybe pinpoint where a student may be 
and then hand that information over because then that also comes into a breach of um, data protection for members of the public. Their details, their information is then being passed over to Queen's as an institution, um, which is then being cross-referenced. So it's a member of the public's um, information also being passed to Queen's um, for um, those that, for that kind of cross-referencing as well. So it's not just students' data being handed over, it's also members of the public who have nothing to do with Queen's itself. Mm -hmm. What's the real difference though, I suppose, I suppose, Chloe, between the university encouraging students to obey the rules and going that little step further and actually deterring students from breaking the rules? I mean, that deterrent is £500. Um, for some students, so that deterrent is maybe two months' rent. And that's where the difference is. You know, the Students' Union and many students will never come out and say that we should never follow public guidance. This is a minority of students. Um, and also the Holy Ones themselves. It's not majority Queen students either. Um, and, you know, that we have Ulster students, but we also have members of the public who are also residents in there who are also um, having those congregations too. What it really kind of comes down to in that sense is the... Or could you repeat the question there, Thomas? <laughs> well, it isn't a train of thought. Don't worry. I think where we get where we're coming from. As a final point, just on COVID-specific issues before we move to the wider off-campus discipline issue, Chloe, I mean, would you urge the university re to return the money that it fined uh, students to those students? Yes, I would I would urge that completely. Do I think that's going to happen? Most likely not, because that money, um, the university is a marketized system. And I, I don't think it's going to happen. But when we actually do look at students' education services contracts, it's on very thin ground on whether they actually have the right to um, find students that money in the first place when it comes down to off-campus behaviour. OK, well, let's talk about that specific issue in just a second. In both of your election manifestos, Chloe, you've talked about that is this issue, fighting against off-campus discipline. Those are your words. Before we talk about exactly how you're going to do that, um, what do you think the university has the right to know about students and what doesn't the university have the right to know about students? Where does the, Where is the line? I think the line comes down to a matter of safety for students. So if, you, if, if it happens on university property, um, if it's a criminal charge, um, there is a process in place. But if it's, impact, if it's not impacting students in terms of their education on campus, um, and it's not impacting the safety of students outside of maybe an isolated instant, instance in terms of, you know, obviously we saw the COVID breaches in those house parties. You could, there is an argument there on public health. And um, then that is where the line is to be drawn. If it's to be handled by Belfast City Council and PSNI, I understand an element of informing the university if it is a criminal charge. Obviously, we want our student community, we want our student and staff community to be safe as possible. And um, But there is an element of what the university will do in response to that and that is where the line needs to be drawn. But, but hold on Chloe, if it's a case of keeping people safe on campus, I mean the university could clearly say that the purpose of this was to, the purpose of suspending students for two weeks without appeal and the purpose of deterring them further by fining students was to protect the student body by excluding those students who weren't playing by the rules and would therefore pose a risk of transmission to other students on campus and their vulnerable family members. If, if your barometer is uh, keeping students safe on campus, then actually it's fairly clear that you could support the university when it came to COVID's uh, deterrence, these, these off-campus uh, COVID regulations. So there's two things there. Thomas, can I ask you, how many times were you in university last year for a class? For class, very rarely, but of course the campus itself was still open and the library was still open for many students in humanity degrees like me. 
Um, you had to use the library for a great many number of your courses uh, and students were in and out of there all the time. So there was still time spent on campus. There was still time spent on campus, but for the most part, campus was closed down. We were in a lockdown-like scenario for a lot of the year last year. Um, and from that perspective, it's it's not really doing as much. Even when isolation kind of came down from 14 days to 10 days, the code of self-practice, which um, for listeners is kind of that off-campus um, regulation that we've been talking about for COVID specifically. And um, that wasn't reflected in the codicil. So it really actually showed that the university was doing it in more of a power play rather than actually the prevention of harm to students and staff. Okay, well, um, so if it comes down to things like when are students safe on campus, let me ask you this. And it's something I asked of uh, the ex-SU president, Graeme McGavin, on her kind of uh, the exit conversation she had with me in the middle of uh, in the middle of the summer there. Um, if a student tweets something, if a student tweets a racial slur, should they be reprimanded by the university? I mean, I would say that there is an argument there that is going to create tangible harm to students. And um, it's obviously there's a whole movement going on right now around freedom of speech. But if that is going to create a harm towards students, students are being racist. If any member of the public um, or a student or a staff member is being racist, there is a element there of there needs to be a consequence. But there, that is a difference. You know, that is creating tangible harm questioning over someone's identity that is the difference there but then what 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 possible okay i i, I suppose i understand what you're and i'm listening to what you're saying chloe but i suppose if, if if the argument is the university can take action when students are doing things off campus that might have an effect on campus surely you could make that argument about anything i'm struggling to come up with a civil or a criminal offense that a student could commit off campus for which you couldn't come up with a good argument as to why it might affect students on campus. Thomas, we might just disagree on this, but I believe, and the Students' Union generally, and many students believe that students have a right to a private life um, and they should have their rights protected. In well, terms of kind of going okay. back to your, what, what sorry, things should be, just okay. going back to the previous about the tweet, um, that is bringing someone's identity into question. Having a house party in the Holy Lands isn't bringing someone's identity into question. There is a clear difference there. Okay, if let's exclude let's exclude COVID for a second. What type of things do you think students was uh, a civil or criminal issue off campus? Do you think that students have a right to remain private? So, give me an example of an offence that a student shouldn't have the university shouldn't have to know about it. First of all, it's not my responsibility, and I'm saying this not as necessarily the students' union. Um, yeah. I don't believe it is my job as a students' union to dictate what is a offence a student should or should not, um, you know, in terms of actual policy. But if we want to give an example of what, what we have been arguing against, and um, we do have ticketed offences, so the likes of a car park um, fine, you know, maybe someone's parked their car. Um, in terms of legislation, in terms of, you know, those noise tickets, that's on the same level. When we're talking about criminal offences versus ticketed offences, that's what we're talking about in terms of off-campus. If it's not going on, the, on our criminal record and it's not causing that harm to the community if we're taking COVID out of it, um, that is where that difference lies. I suppose, Chloe, is a final thing, and I want to move on in just a second. You know, uh, I put it to you as a, as a counter-argument to what you've just said that, I mean, for example, 
tweeting something that is deeply offensive and with which many people disagree about something misogynistic or racist that isn't illegal maybe it should be different argument it isn't illegal um breaking covid rules uh, noise complaints uh parking tickets are illegal so it's not just the case that you're actually just picking the things that you maybe find the most egregious and picking and choosing when the university has a role in students private life rather than that there ever being any real consistency in terms of where the law lies I think there's a real consistency in terms of the impact on students and again I just want to go back to the point that we're not saying that students should break public health guidance we're not <laughs> saying students should have parties in the holy lands yeah what we're saying is that it comes down to the role of the role and responsibility of the university versus the role and responsibility of the PSNI and Belfast City Council and the NI executive we're not saying that students should break the law we're saying that the university should not be the ones to at least be the first ones to punish them for that Okay, let's move on ever so slightly. Um, so we figured out a, a little bit more about where your thoughts are and what is and isn't okay from your perspective. I suppose the next question, it's an open question, it's not a very nice one, Chloe, what are you going to do about it? Um, that's a great question, to be fair. <laughs> um, so, I mean, everyone knows if they're listening, they've been around in the Students' Union or they've been around in the student movement for maybe more than 10 minutes, that off-campus discipline is a contested issue and it's something that can be bounced around from year to year. Um, or it looks like it can be bounced around from year to year without much happening on it. Um, and what I would just like to say is that it's an incredibly difficult issue to make movement on. And that's why we do need journalism like this, this case here and um, with your article, Thomas, why we need to keep talking about it. And um, throughout last year, we had plenty of meetings with senior leadership um, in terms of arguing our points, arguing in you know, our, whether that's a human right place, a double jeopardy, an education services contract breach. Um, and that is what came up in the end with the taking away of the quota cell for students returning to campus this year for the COVID regulation side of everything. Um, in terms of what we're going to do now in the future, kind of moving on um, from this particular moment, um, I'm looking to set up with um, Ulster University and NUSUSI, our National Union of Students for um, Northern Ireland, um, a cross-working group to kind of identify this issue because it's not just a university issue, it's not just a Queen's issue, it's not just an Ulster issue or a St Mary's and we're a strand, you know, it, it impacts everyone and that lobbying has to be brought um, directly to the executive. What we're going to be doing internally within the university itself because obviously students are still being impacted on this um, we're going to be continuing to lobby um, for review of off-campus discipline and um, conduct regulations and that includes moving away, at least in, in the short term, um, until we can get this whole thing eradicated um, away from financial penalties. And that's like what I'll be working towards this year and um, towards more written warning. So it's less harsh on the students when it happens. Uh -huh. And there has, for us, it's really important that we do keep those lines of communication open from the university. However, we are not against um, going out harder and harder and harder on them until this gets finished. I don't know whether this is going to get fixed this year, but I do hope some, that we're going to make more progress. Some students, uh, Chloe, and you know this, some students, when they hear the words working group and lobbying, will groan and say, the issue, I've kicked this into the long grass. And, the, uh, and anytime you hear the word working group, and this isn't exclusive to students' unions, everybody knows, at least in some way, shape or form, then you're not going to hear much for ages. Is that the case that this is just too difficult for you to, to deal with, to handle, so it needs to go to another working group? Is there nothing sort of big 
bold that can be done in the short term. I recall in the Hastings debates that we had before the last SU elections, discussions of the SU, the Queen's SU, taking the university to court. Where's that gone? Is that still something that the SU is considering? Is, is working groups about as radical as the SU can get on this? No, the, that is not as radical as the SU will get on this and has been continuing to be working on. Um, in terms of legal action, for me personally, that's not off the table. Um, I maybe don't want to <laughs> divulge my entire political strategy on air, um, but you know, have a pint with me and I'll tell you all about it. Um, but what I will say is that this has been something that teams for years and years have been chipping away on. You know, for example, what used to be the case is that, you know, members of community engagement, members of the university staff community were able to knock in and, or sorry, they did knock on doors of the Holy Lands and go into students' houses. That's no longer allowed to happen. And that was because of lobbying work in the Students' Union. This is a process. I'm not going to promise that I'm going to be able to fix this by the end of the year. But what I can promise is that I'm going to keep working on it and keep laying the groundwork. And in terms of the working groups, I groan as well when I hear working groups and working groups, because for you guys listening, that means another meeting for me, which might not get what I want or will get what you guys want. Um, but there has to be that element of communication there. And maybe it's maybe it's not a working group. Maybe it's a task and finish group because we want this finished. Um, <laughs> All right, but there, I know. <laughs> right, we'll call it different names. That'll solve it. Well, listen, we'll keep a firm eye on this uh, and make sure uh, and see progress as it happens. Chloe Ferguson, uh, SU Campaigns and Engagements Officer, thank you so much for being with us. Next on the show, a row about free speech and transphobia at the University of Sussex has gained national attention. Professor Kathleen Stock, a philosophy academic at the university, recently published a book questioning the idea that gender identity is more socially significant than biological sex. Stock has also written on her views that trans women are in truth not women, that women-only spaces should be accessible, uh, should not be accessible by trans people for reasons of personal safety, and that children should not be allowed to use puberty blockers. Now, in response, some students and staff at the university and elsewhere have claimed that Stock is transphobic and a campaign has been launched to have Stock removed from her post. At the University of Sussex, Vice-Chancellor Adam Tickell has backed what he said was Stock's untrampled right to say and believe what they think and that the university will be investigating the protesters against her. At the UCU branch at Sussex, however, has urged the university management to take a clear and strong stance against transphobia at Sussex and undertake an investigation into institutional transphobia. Right, well, I'm joined now by Kit Penlington, a former trans officer at the QUBSU. Kit, thanks very much for being with me. Thanks for having me. I suppose, first of all, I outlined very quickly their stocks views as I've outlined them above. Do you think that they kind of amount to transphobia? Does that word for you have a fully fleshed out definition? I I think she absolutely, I, I would say that those views absolutely are transphobic in that, um, you know, she may argue that they are not for various reasons, but I I really struggle to understand how she could say that it isn't like they they are directly pretty harmful to various sections of the community, like directly 
saying that people should be excluded from spaces or uh, denied really important medical treatments as, you know, not especially a debatable whether or not that's discriminatory. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose there are some people, you know, particularly in older generations, who would say all of Stock's views, they would say, oh, that's perfectly obvious to me. Um, do you think that uh, this sort of, do you think that transphobia is something where, I mean, if you believe any of those things, do you think you're a transphobe or do you think there's more need to be taken into consideration about intention behind that? Um, well, I do think, I, as with sort of any uh, sort of discriminatory or like, uh, you know, like a, I'm struggling for the word, but, you know, sort of uh, like discriminatory uh, opinions about a marginalized group. Um, It's a lot of people would have those opinions out of definitely out of places of ignorance rather than hatred. They may have. um, You definitely see, especially around this debate these days, you know, people saying, oh, we just have concerns about this, um, especially when it comes to like the puberty blockers for young people, the, um, especially because it involves children, like people always get more worried about children. And I absolutely understand that, but they, if you engage with the studies and the science and you know where like these young, like what these young people are, you, there's not really you know the threats that they believe are there are not really as you know the the threat they perceive is not really there mm-hmm. um so i obviously the i couldn't say that like all those people that have those views are like transphobic with hateful intentions but those beliefs in themselves definitely are transphobic. So, okay, so not, we've kind of, so, I mean, on one hand, I suppose some people might say, and I'll, I'll put both sides of this argument across and, and, and see what you think. Some people might say, you know, it's wrong to call other people transphobic because it maybe toxifies the discussion. Maybe it actually hinders persuasion. You're maybe less inclined to be convinced of, of something by some by somebody that's just called you a transphobe. On the other hand, the argument is, you know, we should call out hate when we see it. No matter what, call it spade a spade. Don't try to hide discrimination under euphemistic language. What's your view on, on the kind of debate, those two sides of, of the argument of, of calling out or, or claiming that somebody is transphobic? Well, absolutely, I'd say uh, very dependent on the situation. Like hmm. if... If you're talking about uh, someone who's like getting into these views, maybe um, like an older family member or like someone who someone who doesn't have some large wider platform, you know, they're 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 sharing to like their 100 Facebook friends or or something. You can uh, maybe approach it with more of a uh, they need an education setting, but um for people with larger platforms uh like kathleen stock you know she's teaching at a university she's published several books she's uh she gets a lot of attention um and she's definitely 
you know, she's absolutely like she's an academic in the field. She's had plenty of opportunity for education and she's saying she's spreading some really, really harmful, harmful ideas. And which is is funneling into sort of an overall thing that an overall. A large. A, a sort of. You know, it's funneling into something that makes a lot of people very unsafe. Um, so I think absolutely it needs to be called out in a more direct way for that. Like, I, I, you can't, it's, if it was your granny, you could sit her down and say, like, look, these, uh, and explain it in a more, kind way but that's it's clearly a bit beyond the situation for her yeah and i want to talk in just a second about that sort of real life experience uh and ask you about your real life experiences there in terms of in terms of experiencing uh sort of what what you're describing there what you call transphobia just before we do you know um kathleen stock i suppose is is she's an academic she's a philosophy academic I do philosophy as part of my degree. I recall only last year having discussions in class about whether the right to life was a real thing. You know, that's certainly controversial. Do you not think, is it the job of philosophers to question everything? Because actually only by doing so can we better defend the principles that we believe are right? Um, well, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I've never uh, been like a philosophy academic or anything, but I... I guess that is, uh, that is a part of it, but there's, maybe this is where the academic freedom debate comes in, like uh, you would say an academic has, and a philosopher, uh, you know, it's their job to question all these things, but uh, when it gets to the point where what they're questioning and what they're saying has very harmful real life consequences for a lot of people. You would, you know, you'd not really tolerate it anymore and you'd put a stop to it or you'd, uh, you, you, you like, you would hope that their employer would not decide to continue spreading those ideas, etc. cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And as a, as a trans person, Kit, I mean, what does that, uh, you've described there, um, now, Kathleen Stock, of course, uh, rejects being transphobic, but what you've described there is the consequences of, of what you see as the kind of um, ideas that she's spreading and how it creates an unsafe environment, your words and also the words of many of the people who've criticised Stock over the last number of weeks, an unsafe environment for trans people. Try to get across to me, if you can, what that feels like as, as a trans person. Um, I mean, what, I suppose, what is life like? Um, and and give can you give me a couple of examples of where transphobia has had a really a huge impact in your life, maybe just on the on the day to day? Um, I I would preface this as well by saying um, as my because I am a trans like all different, you know, there's many different kinds of trans people with different identities and different experiences, um, and they definitely. I definitely have had uh, experience with, experiences with transphobia. Some of, uh, particularly Kathleen Stock's views around, uh, you know, trans women 
should never be allowed into women's spaces and things. These are obviously uh, far more harmful to um, you know, trans women and trans feminine people, but they kind of like, I mean, to, to deny someone's rights to use the public bathroom is to deny their rights to, to be out in the public space. It, the bathrooms are just essential facilities that everyone will need to use. Um, and it's, I, I was reading up some of the, the things she said in preparation for this, and she talks about, um, you know, a, a, like undermining cis women's confidences to question the right of someone to be in a bathroom in regards to uh, changing the laws around uh, mm -hmm. your certification of gender and a vast, like being part of trans communities, like you hear over me, a lot of people like hate crimes are disturbingly common um especially around like if people think you're in the wrong place and um i've like i've personally been intimidated by people in a bathroom uh on at least one occasion just by um you know there was just like a member of cleaning staff just sort of standing there just staring at me for quite a while sort of just I don't know just being intimidating um and it definitely a lot worse has happened to other people when yeah. you know they've been questioned about that they should be I suppose let's then bring in the argument of academic freedom and freedom of freedom of speech into this debate so we've described what you think <clears throat> or you, you would categorize stocks views as you've described some of the effects uh, that those kind of views you say you know have on have on the trans community, I suppose when push comes to shove, Kitch, should she lose her job? Um, I do. I I do believe that she should lose her job because, um, absolutely, we all have freedom of speech, but uh, anything you say, you are liable for the consequences of that, and if you make dangerous and hateful statements, you. You can't expect your employer to keep, you know, supporting you to do the work that's going to make those statements. Um, you know, are are, are academics are academics always responsible, Kit, for so the consequences of the things they say? I mean, I go back to a lot of first year students. Uh, you know, at Queens will have will have studied uh, uh, the ethics of abortion during their first year. It doesn't mean that the lecturers who are teaching them the arguments for and against or, or you know, against abortion are responsible for uh, the harassment of, of women walking into abortion clinics, does it? Um, no, I guess it doesn't. Hmm. Let, 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 let me ask you this, Tit, I suppose, as, as we kind of finish up, you know, um, recent evidence suggests that one in three academics at universities uh, 
feel as if they can't express their real views. That's a survey evidence. And a quarter of students feel the same. Um, do you think that's concerning? Do you have, would you have concerns about a kind of chilling factor of debates and conversations like this about what can and can't be said, that it results in, in a situation where some students and staff feel as if they can't really speak their mind on campus? Um, well, I get it has to come down to what's it has to come down to what those views are. Like mm. I, I do agree with freedom of speech that people should be able to express their opinions and say what they want. But when it comes down to, for example, like um, the UCU statements from the the Sussex chapter, I read, and they they don't actually call. They don't call for it to be fired. They just called for an investigation, and they they just referenced the piece, the policy pieces that the UCU nationally have. They have a policy against transphobia in the workplace, and they have a policy about academic freedom that says that people should never be uh, just straight up fired. Which is why they called for an investigation rather than for her to lose her job. Um, to me, really, if she's not violated the university and UCU's uh, equality and diversity policies, then she'd have nothing to worry about because she'd have been deemed to do nothing wrong. Um, I, I suppose that I suppose the concern from Stock would be, you know, who's, who conducts the investigation and what are their definition of these things and do they different from hers? Uh, Kit, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for talking to me. It is a really difficult topic and we've kind of explored uh, some, some of the more complicated questions that are kind of beneath the surface of for and against. So thank you for giving me your time at Kit uh, Pennington there, former trans officer at QUBSU. Okay, let's change direction now and take a look at two of the stories brought to you by the Scoops online newspaper. With me now is Holly Fleck, a health and lifestyle reporter, and Anna Royal, deputy culture editor. Holly and Anna, thank you so much for being with me. Anna, why don't we start with you and the story you were writing about this week. Hundreds of thousands of people have now applied for this £100 high street voucher, and you've been looking into one of the businesses that's really likely to benefit from that. Tell me all about it. Yeah, so I was speaking to No Alibis bookstore on Botanic and obviously it's a local bookstore so they've had, you know, not the easiest year. Um, and on top of that, like they are donating 20% of the value of each transaction to the charity Fighting Words, which is basically a charity based in Ireland that encourages, inspires children to get involved in writing. It, you know, provides free mentoring for them. Um, and then on top of that, like they do student discount so, you know, it's not going to be any more expensive than it would be to go to Waterstones or Amazon. And I suppose if you're an independent bookshop, you've kind of had a double whammy over the last couple of years. You've had the pandemic and this is what this high street voucher is designed to designed to try to mitigate the effects of. But you've also got the huge behemoth that is Amazon eating into the market of independent bookstores. How do you think from challenge to the ones down to no alibis, um, how do you think they're trying to cope? with a huge beast like Amazon on the market? Are they changing the way they do things? Or is it just a matter of, of slowly but surely being driven into the ground? Yeah, I mean, Amazon started in 1994 and No Alibis started in 1995. So they knew it was always going to be there. 
I mean, of course it hasn't been easy. Like it has been a massive competition. And even I looked into like Waterstones was really struggling in like, you know, the early kind of nineties or late nineties, whenever Amazon came on the scene that they started like pretending that they were like independent booksellers because they knew that people were like aware of this big threat and they thought people more likely to shop in local bookstores, um, which is just mental. So obviously they had not only Amazon, but also then Waterstones combating that as well. Um, but like David Don Albies, he kind of told me that they've just had to adapt and because they are smaller, it is easier for them to do that. Um, and they're not just a bookshop, like they offer so much more. They describe on their website as a community um, and they hold like, you know, concerts, book launches, poetry readings, lectures, all those sorts of things that separate them from Amazon. So I think that's why they've managed to come up fine after it, because it's more than just selling books. You think that's the key then? And I suppose, is that a lesson, do you think, that, that we could be taking um, into the rest of the high street, the purpose of this high street voucher? Uh, issued by the Northern Ireland Executive is to try to revive and boost the economy in the high street. But we know that for a, a, you know, a, lot, a, a number of years, the high street has been dying. Do you think there's a message in what no alibis are trying to do about events, getting people down for reasons other than just simple purchases that can be exported and copied elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't, like, you can't be kind of face-to-face. It's not just an algorithm choosing your books. It's actually people it's actually you know people who want to do this uh, and I think that's the key thing it, it's you know we don't want to just I mean in my ideal world we don't want to just be ordering books online and staring at computer screens we want to actually go out and actually kind of have a sense of yeah community as I put it okay um and uh okay well as a final thing Anna I mean you walk into New Alibis what's t- number one book at the moment that you want to get when you walk in there um, the Sally Rooney one, <laughs> yeah. although I'm not a big fan of hers, I do want to read it still to okay. know what <laughs> I had a feeling it might be the only book that people are talking about at the moment. Uh, Anna, thank you so much. And, and Holly, you're with us as well. You're looking to a similar story of reopening kind of after the pandemic. This time it's the theatre. You've been up to visit Riverside Theatre in Coleraine. Who did you find there? Yes, so I spoke to... Um, Rebecca Watterson, Michael Kinsella and Dr Ian Miller and together they're a group of medical history researchers and they will be presenting the event on Wednesday the 27th of October at the Riverside Theatre and it will also be hosted online um, and that will take place from 12 o'clock on Wednesday so it will and I think it's going to roughly last about an hour. Okay and it's called Life and Death in the Asylum. Mm-hmm. Um What's that all about? What can people expect before we get on to, you know, being back in the theatre? Okay, so it's going to focus on the time period of 1840 to 1970. And audience members are going to be almost transported and provided by a a glimpse into the beliefs of psychiatrists and the care that was available for middle and upper class citizens at this time. And um, the the patient experiences in itself. Dr. Ian Miller did say that audience members will uh, gain a greater awareness of the complexities of mental health history. Yeah, um, I suppose mental health history is one of these things that we're looking at with an all, uh, you know, an altogether different light now. In my head, I mean, I'm hearing, uh, I'm thinking of connections to things like mother and baby homes and the kind of and the kind of trauma that that caused people. I mean, is is the history of mental health that we might get a glimpse of in a show like this? 
one in which um, you know we're learning huge lessons and discovering huge mistakes of the past? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, definitely. Um, for example, Michael Pincella, he's interested in the care for middle and upper classes at that time, as um, he found that there was an Irish asylum at this time that was excluding these citizens. Mm. Um, and he was interested in how these citizens then had to travel to other asylums for care. And Dr. Ian Miller, his research is focuses on um, the healthy body, healthy minds belief of this of the 19th century and um, psychiatrist. And he's actually found through his investigations that asylum patients were much better fed than those who were in workhouses or prisons which is quite surprising. Um, and Rebecca Watterson then looks at these procedures that they um, tried to treat mental illnesses at the time, um, such as lobotomies and shock therapies and just their overall experience with psychiatrists in these asylums. Wow. And, and how, how can people find out more, Holly? Well, you can follow their work on their website, which is called Epidemic Belfast. And I was told that they are de- uh, developing a learning resource that consists of articles and podcasts on their medical history findings. And in terms of being back in the theatre, did you get a sense that, I mean, I suppose in some ways these academics are performers in this, you know, in this production, they'll be on stage talking to the audience. Were people there excited to kind of be back into the theatre? Because I imagine this is one of the first shows re-emerging after the pandemic in Riverside Theatre. Mm-hmm. Indeed, there is a great, there will be, It'll be very different for many people to be back. And, you know, there is option there of uh, watching it online, which does provide people with that option if they're not, you know, being too confident about returning to the theatre. But yes, there definitely was an excitement around coming back to see this event. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Holly Fleck there, uh, a health and lifestyle reporter and a Royal Deputy Culture Editor. Thank you so much for talking us through the stories you were covering this week um, for the Scoops online newspaper. Thanks, guys. Okay, let's move on. A new report has revealed that 10% of PhD students in the UK could be at high risk of suicide. Researchers from the University of Sussex and Westminster uh, surveyed over 1,000 respondents and found that 8% of respondents had attempted to take their own lives, 11% had considered suicide very often, so more than five times in the past year, and another 6% had revealed that they often thought about suicide, so three to four times in the past year. With me now is Leah Ray, a PhD candidate in law and politics at Ulster University. Uh, Leah, thanks very much for being with me. I suppose, first of all, hearing those figures, do they surprise you a lot? Well, firstly, Thomas, thanks very much for having me on. Um, I thought that the statistics were very striking and certainly very sobering reading, but I have to say, frankly, I'm not surprised to hear of these findings from this very important survey. When conducting a PhD, it can be a very isolating experience, and I think that's been reflected with the findings. Whenever you are undertaking something of what is for yourself of great personal magnitude, it's really important to feel that you are supported and that you have peers that you can link in with and engage with. And I know, at least for myself, when I commenced my PhD studies, it was in the middle of a pandemic and we were working from home. So what was already going to be quite a daunting experience for myself, I feel was exacerbated by the ramifications of the pandemic. And I know that for many people, they weren't fortunate enough to have perhaps a supportive familial network or friendship network. And they really did feel that they were working in isolation, which of course would just simply lead to very acute feelings of loneliness and also anxiety. So I think that's been reflected in this survey. 
I think, so obviously PhD students, some of them do, and we'll talk in a second about, you know, elements of teaching that you can get involved in. But if we just look at kind of just the PhD research, can you give me an idea of uh, how lonely that is? Is there anybody else that, are there any peers that you're working with? Uh, how often are you kind of checking in with academics at the university? I mean, how long could you feasibly go doing just the PhD element? Let's leave aside anything else you might do for teaching, for example, in a second, just the PhD element. Uh, how long could you go without really engaging with other people? How, how lonely is it? Could you give me a sense of that? Certainly. I know for myself, um, on average, I would have perhaps, depending on what work I'm undertaking, supervisory meetings, maybe every one and a half, every two months. And for wow. the most part, they have been conducted on Zoom or Microsoft Teams. Um, now, I will have to say my supervisory team are excellent, incredibly supportive and very, very approachable. But of course, when you're working in isolation, they can feel you feel that distance, I think, a bit more. You will be conducting research. It depends, of course, at each stage of your journey. So for first year and second year, um, ultimately, you are really honing in on the detail of your proposal. You are trying to narrow the scope of the proposal, develop your methodology, develop your, propo your approaches, and then conduct that basic research to underpin what your hypotheses will be, which, I mean, I suppose you can kind of assume from what I'm saying, that requires a lot of desktop research, a lot of being stuck at a desk, being in front of a screen. And the problem with PhD research is that you're not really usually working as part of a team. You yourself will be conducting this research. So you might have support. Some people might be in your department doing something similar, but they will not be doing the same thing. So it's not like perhaps different elements of study, like laboratory work, for example, where you would have other people in a room with you. You will be working in isolation. And that was me for the first year, the entirety of the first year of my studies. So it could be feasible, for example, that a PhD student could go, you know, a month, a month and a half without really engaging with 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 somebody else uh, in terms of the academia that they're doing. Yes, um, it could be. I mean, things are slightly different now, of course, with campuses reopening and, and services being available on campus. But I know for myself, at least for the last year, um, it's felt like I'm just sitting by myself in a room with a laptop and, and I will have emails with my supervisors. I will have calls with my supervisors. But it ultimately is just myself. And I know it was the same for other PhD candidates. It's slightly different now when things have resumed and they've reopened. But it's still very much a, a one person job, so to speak. Um, and it will continue to be so. And in terms of how long the journey can be, they generally expect it to be about three years, but obviously that can change depending on whether you've been able to access your research participants, your fieldwork might change, particularly if you're hoping to go abroad for fieldwork. So it could be longer, but then that can cause issues in terms of financing mm. as well. Um, I know for myself with my scholarship, it's for three years. So if I were to go beyond three years, I would no longer have the financial support um, coming in to assist me with doing that. And it could obviously be difficult for people as well with caring responsibilities or also taking up employment. How does that finance element of it break down? So, so you're in a scholarship, you just said, so that's three years. I mean, what's the kind of proportion of students who are self-financing, paying for it themselves with all the obvious pressure that comes with that and, and the number on scholarships? Do you get a kind of a sense of that even just anecdotally? I would say the majority of PhD candidates are probably self-financing. There will be, depending on university, there can be different financial supports available. Um, you may have applied exclusively for a scholarship when you submitted your research proposal, or you may be offered the opportunity to apply for different research funding grants and bursaries when you have been accepted as a PhD candidate. But more often than not, for PhD candidates, it is a case of self-financing and self-funding. And I would say perhaps 
at least of PhD candidates I know, they would be people who are more mature students because they've had several years of employment experience and they may have either left their job or reduced their hours of their job to undertake the PhD as well. So whilst they might have saved for it, those savings, of course, can only go so far. So I think that really adds to the anxiety and the stress. Candidates feel under pressure to commit their studies within that three-year time frame, particularly candidates like myself who are on scholarships mm -hmm. because in a sense, that's like a looming sign over my head that if I don't complete by the three-year period, I can end up not having the yeah. monthly stipend that I receive. And you've taken the, the decision, which many PhD students take, to do sort of teaching a, 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 in university um, alongside your research. How does that system work? Um, you know, uh, is that something that lots of PhD students do? Is that something that you think has helped you in terms of trying to mitigate that loneliness? Absolutely. In terms of the system, it would be quite commonplace for PhD candidates to be provided with teaching assistant opportunities and when they have received the relevant qualifications to undertake lecture positions and also um, assignment funding, as our assignment uh, grading. Um, it really does depend on each faculty and each school might run the process slightly differently, but I know within the School of Law and equally with the School of Applied Policy and Social Sciences at Ulster, when you've completed the introductory teaching course, um, that provides you with the opportunity to be approached really with teaching assisting opportunities, which happened with myself. I was offered to conduct seminars on a weekly basis for the first semester of this academic year, which I was very glad to do because as you've alluded to, Thomas, it's an opportunity to see other students and to feel like you're part of something on campus. And I have to say, a part of the reason I opted to, to avail of this opportunity was I would love to have the teaching experience, but also because I really um, welcomed the opportunity to have some sort of work-life balance, so to speak. It is still work that I'm undertaking, but it's something that's not necessarily tied to my research. So I feel that there's something else bringing me to campus and it's not just sitting in front of the library or sitting in a doctoral college. And of course, that's that's the sort of paid work as well. So that's particularly important for students who are self-financing. Absolutely. But um, when you're a PhD candidate, you are instructed that you can only conduct so many teaching hours per week. Um, it, it's meant to be in recognition of the fact that you're there mm. first and foremost to be a researcher and to conduct your research. So again it might be slightly depending on each university but I know within Ulster you're limited to between 12 teaching hours a week so it, those students who are self-financing can't really rely on teaching assistant duties to really supplement their income it, it's something that can assist but it wouldn't necessarily be something that they could wholly rely upon whilst conducting yeah. their studies. And, and I wonder about the pressure Leah I mean there's a lot riding on your PhD there's sort of a lot of high expectations least of all you know, imposed by yourself. I dare say that the type of people who do PhDs are probably the type of people who've placed quite a lot of academic pressure on themselves and have high expectations for their own academic performance. Would that be your experience that there's a lot of pressure sort of internally and externally? Absolutely. We regularly discuss amongst ourselves as PhD candidates the role of imposter syndrome and mm. the, the running joke that we always have with each other is imposter syndrome is real and I describe it as being a cycle where for maybe a month at a time I feel very confident at the stage of my research. I feel that I'm on top of my research and I know what my direction is and I know how to get there and the next month I just wonder why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? And it goes back and forth and I remember thinking I'm, I'm sure you're the only person who feels this way. And then when you have maybe PhD training courses and you meet other PhD candidates through those courses, you realize everyone feels the same and everyone is in the same boat. 
And I suppose, yes, it's part and parcel of conducting research at this level that you will have self-doubt. But I just wonder perhaps if it's been taken to be so accepted that people don't properly challenge it. It has come up in different training courses. And I think it even was talked about with my induction last year. You will feel imposter syndrome, but remember you've been accepted and you clearly are qualified and you can conduct it. But I just wonder perhaps if that message could really be emphasized more as a way of trying to address the pressures and address the self-doubt and maybe the issues of confidence that all can add to um, people who, who clearly should be there. They have been accepted. They've proven themselves in academia. But when you have that self-doubt, it leads to the pressure. And then that can also cause further issues for mental health and well-being. Yeah. And the length of the degree, sorry, it's only come back to me. I mean, three years you're working on yeah. sort of the same project, Leah. I mean, that's got to be um, draining. Is, is draining the right word? I mean, I do, as part of my undergraduate degree, you know, a third of my university time is spent on doing, you know, maybe two slightly related topics. And I'm bored of it by the end of that. I mean, is 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 there a draining element to it where you just want to tear it all up and and you're sick of it? Yes, it's, I remember um, I actually advised some of my friends recently who were hoping to apply for a PhD and I just said, don't select as your proposal a topic that you think sounds good because if you're not 100% committed and genuinely very passionate and interested to see where your research will go, you will hate it within one year. And if it's a three-year course, that will be a very long three years. Mm. But I think it's what's very important to emphasize, Thomas, is that three years might sound quite long, but they go very, very quickly. And I think that also causes pressure because if you had said to me, you know, you're now in your second year of your studies. And in fact, we're, we're getting quite close to being halfway through the first semester of this academic year. I wouldn't have believed it because I still feel that I'm quite new still yet to being a PhD candidate. So the time flies in very quickly and you have to reach certain milestones at certain stages in order to ensure that you will reach that three-year deadline. So when you feel you're not hitting those milestones, it also causes further pressure. So it absolutely is draining. I think some days I wake, I, I sometimes feel like I don't get proper sleep because I'm constantly thinking about what if I don't reach this? What if I don't get this yeah. conducted in time? Talk, talk to me quickly about those milestones there. So, I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of, is it is it plausible for you to put in all that work and just not get it? Or, or is that kind of the, you know, is that the type of thing that people constantly worry about, but in reality is quite rare to, to happen? Or is there really a kind of jeopardy in the sense of you really might not get the PhD? Do, do you understand what I mean? Or is it kind of just yes. academically intelligent people always worry about not getting there in the end? Or is that a real risk? I think everyone does worry about not getting there in the end because you have high standards for yourself and high expectations. Yeah. The majority of people who undertake a PhD will complete it, but there are there are statistics which show some people drop out after the first and second year, and whether that's to do with self-doubt or different things that change in their lives. But there is still yet a risk that you cannot, you can put in three plus years of work and you will not be awarded um, your degree, depending on your external examiners and what their ultimate decisions are. And some people have failed their PhD viva, essentially by being told your methodology wasn't sound. And if your methodology isn't sound, all your research technically then could be invalid because the methodology hasn't been described as being rigorous enough, mm. which is why it's so important to work with your supervisors and listen to their advice and what they provide <laughs> you on board. And I've been very, very lucky to have great supervisors, but I know there's people conducting this research and feel they don't have a good working relationship with their supervisors. And if they feel apprehensive about asking for guidance and support, and then they don't get any support, what then does that just lead them I, on? I just can't begin to imagine that the crushing disappointment if you got to the end of three years you know maybe you've paid for it 
uh, you know, the time you spent and to not and to not get it in the end. Uh, on a personal basis, Leah, I mean, do you empathize with some of the feelings that are expressed in that report? I mean, I'm not asking necessarily if you've you've considered suicide in the way that's outlined here. But I mean, is that something that you can empathize with on a personal well, basis? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I definitely know for myself, I think I said it earlier on, like there's times I've had sleepless nights um, going through my studies and there's times I wonder, am I going to get there in the end? And I feel apprehensive sometimes about sending work through to my supervisors because you're worried in case you get very mm. harsh criticism and that demoralizes you somewhat. Um, and I can certainly understand for people who have not been fortunate to have a very supportive um, working environment, to have those approachable supervisors, to feel that there's support services in place in their doctoral college to avail of, because then when you feel you can't reach out and you can't talk and say, this is genuinely how I feel, what do I do? You internalize all those feelings and you internalize the panic and the fear. And that obviously causes a very much a severe downward spiral in your mental health until such time you feel it is hopeless to carry on. And I think mm. if people have felt that scale and they clearly have in the results of that survey, for me, I find that so disheartening, so disappointing because they've been failed in a sense but by their mm. universities or by their, their faculties because they felt they haven't been able to reach out. Well, well, let's talk about, I suppose, then, you know, here's the problem. Here's why the problem exists. What's the solution in your mind? I mean, for you, are there structural things you would change? Is it is it more maybe cultural and less structural? Uh, I mean, if you were going about redesigning the system, how would you? What would you put in place to try to to try to fix the problem that's that's clearly here? You've hit the nail on the head. It's absolutely a combination of both cultural and structural. Firstly, in terms of cultural mindset, I think there's almost this expectation that PhD candidates will feel burnt out. And sometimes that almost comes across. Now, it's not at Ulster, but I've heard at different universities, it almost comes across as a badge of honour. For someone to be able to say that they've worked 12 15 hour days and they're not getting sleep and that absolutely should not be the case like that is not something that should be allowed to be continued as being part of a cultural psyche at a faculty or at a university for people to feel and, proud of, of doing exactly that, yeah. and also for academics to sort of anticipate that you know they should say to their phd researchers we will expect you to do this and you will feel this way but that's part and parcel of a course no course should make you feel so low that you feel that taking your own life is the only way out. Like that just absolutely has to be key. And no one should ever be made to feel to such a degree of loneliness that they feel that self-harm is, is the yeah. only way to relieve how they feel. So there needs to be some sort of cultural change and shift where people can say, PhD researchers, you deserve a life too. Yes, you're here for a very, very draining course, but that ultimately means we need to ensure you're fully supported in conducting that course. And in, the terms, in terms of structurally, um, I know universities have incredible support services for undergrad and postgrad students in terms of mental health and well-being. PGRs, uh, PhD candidates sometimes feel they're not, it's not applicable services for them because mm. we're not staff and we're not students. So we fall between the gaps a lot of the time in terms of support services mm. that are available. And I think perhaps there needs to be it needs to be made clear that those types of support services are in place for everyone. Or alternatively, universities should consider whether they need to introduce specific PhD support services and also maybe make it clear that, because um, this is one of the worries PhD candidates have, that things will get back to their supervisors and their supervisors could be judgmental. There needs to be something perhaps where it's a form where it's anonymous. So people who need maybe to get that space just to say, I don't feel great, what do I do? And I don't want my staff to know. They as, can a final, do so. as a final point, Leah, I wonder, I mean, we've talked, it sounds quite a lot like 
for a lot of PH students, their supervisors are a real problem. Um, I mean, we've talked there about feeling as if the supervisors might judge them, things getting back to their supervisors, um, supervisors placing certain expectations on students. Is there a problem with the way that, is there a specific problem with, with the way that supervisors are behaving and acting in terms of PhDs? Or is it just because they're the only real contact that PhD students have so that, you know, they have to be responsible? I think it's very much a case-by-case study because, again, I am incredibly fortunate to have the supervisors that I have. And, and frankly, I wouldn't be continuing on this journey if I didn't know that they were there and I could approach them. Um, but I think the survey itself has highlighted there were different um, as findings that were, were highlighted where people had said quite clearly as a PhD candidate they did not feel they were being supported by their supervisors and the problem really is your, your supervisors are the main source of support and guidance you need to have as a PhD candidate they ultimately help you shape your project find a direction your project yeah. research is taking so, if so I suppose it, to, yeah if you've got a bad one that's it I mean it's 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 so much is dependent on your supervisor exactly and if, if they don't give you the advice and guidance you can feel it during the wilderness yeah. essentially and whether you could be very unfortunate to have a supervisor who didn't want to be a supervisor and they make that quite clear or equally, you could have a supervisor who's incredibly friendly and supportive, but you personally just feel, I can't ask them things because I don't want them to judge me. Yeah. And again, that's a cultural mindset. We just need to make, make it very clear that this is not, your, your supervisor's not like your boss at work. They're there more to support you and they need to know yeah. if you have questions and they need to know what roadblocks you're stumbling upon because they're there to help you navigate that. I suppose as, a, you know, as an undergrad, you need to imagine it a bit like, imagine it's you know, all your lecturers plus your academics you know, plus your course convener, plus your advisor studies all rolled into one. And then imagine you get that lecture that you don't like the most is that one person. That's yeah. what it feels like to have. And, and you're there for three years, right? Well, Leah, thank you very much for for, for sort of painting that picture of what, what it's like to be a PhD student. I appreciate it very much. Um, and clearly we will be returning to this issue in the future. Uh, Leah Ray, PhD candidate in law and politics at Ulster University. Thank you so much. And to finish tonight's show, a student from Queen's was named this week as Nursing Student of the Year at this year's UK-wide Royal College of Nursing Nursing Awards. With me now is Mairead Ryan, who has just graduated from mental health nursing here at Queen's. First of all, Mairead, congratulations. How did it feel? Um, it was definitely like a huge shock, to be honest. Uh, my lecturer had told me she nominated me. And I thought that was like a big deal in itself that like she felt like I needed recognition um, because the work I do, I just do because it's my passion and I just want to help other people. And obviously in nursing, the whole point of a nurse is to be an advocate for others. And it's just something that comes naturally to me. Um, so when they announced that I had won, that was another whole array of like disbelief. Um, yeah, like even the day after I was just like, no, I didn't win. <laughs> And was it a was it an online ceremony, an in-person ceremony? How did it work? Where were you when you found out? Um, so me and a couple of members of my family just watched it from like our living room and just through the TV with the HDMI, you know, good old HDMI. And um it was live. So Kate Garraway hosted it from Good Morning Britain. And yeah. basically you were your reaction was put on screen so you could see all the other finalists backstage, but then the winner was like zoomed in on for like their reactions. Oh no way. <laughs> oh that, so the camera was 
was was sort of not far from you. Did you have to say anything afterwards or were they just sort of taking the look on your face? No, like they spoke to you and stuff. So they were just like, how do you feel? But to be honest, I think I'm honestly getting about four words out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Right, okay. Um, I suppose the reason you do mental health nursing and the reason anybody does nursing in general is is because of the reasons you've just said it's a passion it's for advocating for people you've said before Maria, behind every mental health nurse is a story what's your story i think that my story i like sort of found my passion really early in life so i'm like really lucky that way but like with any passion you have to sort of go through something to find out it is your passion so when I was around 14 um, years old, I had been really struggling mentally and I just didn't know like what was going on. I was, my head just constantly felt like I was experiencing negative thoughts and circulation, always had really poor self-esteem and it was getting to a point where I just wouldn't look in the mirror because I really didn't like the look of my face and it, it was just really tough and my mum found it really hard to understand because obviously like she's been the best mommy ever to me and that's one thing I will say people often like blame themselves for their family members like having something like that but that's not the case at all it's just like how you regulate your emotions and as a teenager then I was always just described as really anxious it was sort of like oh yeah Maria's a warrior and it was really normalized and then it just got like to a point where I was it was affecting my daily life like I didn't want to go outside because I was scared of experiencing what I could give was a panic attack after but to me it just felt like recurrent heart attacks like and I and this is at the age of just 14 yeah and I just didn't understand why no one like my friends would laugh and stuff but they didn't understand either because they were only young we just used to go out and I used to feel breathless and have all the symptoms of like uh, experience so I used to have like a ringing in my ears and my vision used to go and my heart like had the palpitations and everything and I just felt like it was going to collapse and so I just stopped going outside because I started to associate the outside with me experiencing that and that's when my mummy was like, this is enough. You know, we need to go and see the doctor about whatever this is. And I did go to the doctor and I broke down crying because I was like, I just don't understand what's going on. And then she told me you're experiencing something called panic disorder. And I'm going to like refer you to child and adolescent mental health services. So that's where it all really started. And panic disorder, Marie, is that something that stays with you forever? Yeah, so um, now I obviously can manage it a lot better because I understand it, but there would be times, like, if I'm having really stressful, like, situational things going on in life, I would have, like, an acute period of where I would experience negative thoughts constantly and have to constantly tell myself, like, no, it's just in your head, like, and break it down the way I was shown how to in cognitive behaviour therapy. Um, but it is one of those things, yeah, you have to live with the rest of your life. And what was it about that experience that made you want to be a mental health nurse? Because I, I think, you know, there are some people who might go through that and say, I just want to be as far away from that, you know, associate it with a really terrible period of time in their life. And they might think to themselves, I just, I want to put push it as far away from me as I can. Um, <laughs> why was your reaction to say, no, actually... I want to find out more 
and I want to really spend my life and my career dedicated to this issue of mental health? Um, well, I think after like meeting my therapist and go, doing the cognitive behaviour therapy, I was like, how does no one know? Like, how do you assist themselves in everyday life? The same way if I sprayed my ankle, the basic knowledge would be get a nice pack, keep it elevated. And I just felt if I had I had that intervention a lot earlier in my life, it, I wouldn't have had to go through that. And that's why I, I wanted to pursue the career because I knew here that that was my experience. And when I looked into it, I knew that Northern Ireland became one of the like worst places for mental illness in the whole of the UK. So then I was like, well, if I've had this experience, why can't we try and stop it happening to other people and intervene earlier before it manifests? into something like panic disorder yeah and what and what what can we do i suppose Marit, is it it's a matter of education is it a matter of individuals being encouraged to take their mental health more seriously i mean for you what are the really key things that everybody can do in their day-to-day life to try to improve mental health Mm -hmm. i think um one of the big things that i've noticed from 14 to now was self-esteem was always a big problem and it is a problem like intrinsically linked with the likes of mood disorders and panic disorder um also resilience i would say within our generation resilience is much harder to come across because young people face these new challenges like the social media like bullying bullying's always existed but it used to be left at the outside door whereas now it can be relentless for young people um with self-esteem the social media element too i would say has a lot like to take for that um where people are comparing themselves and they're not getting to grips with who they are as a person before they're being exposed to what's meant to be perfection so if they haven't developed into like who they are as an adult for going through puberty yet and then they're looking at this idea of perfection. They're never going to feel like they like themselves. So I think there are two huge issues. And the education sectors were my story, your story, the campaign I was part of. So it was a huge opportunity. So that's why we wanted mental health monitoring put within the education system, because many of the young people that we work with were always either overlooked in education as like troublemakers because they were displaying behaviors that obviously associate with disruptiveness but what that actually was was like manifestations of the early stages of like a mental disorder or illness Mm -hmm. and they did have unstable homes but this wasn't addressed much later on so obviously the effects had already taken place so i think education is a huge um area for that And, and how do you think that we can help people build resilience well, with my story, your story, the way we very much viewed it was we had obviously the outreach program. So we had went around schools just to speak about these issues, because I remember when I was young, if you ever like when, especially in Northern Ireland, we have this culture, what we call slagging and people have to take stuff as like a pinch of salt. But when you're such a sensitive person, like the way I was and the way my brain mechanics were working at the time, every things someone slagged me about supposedly I internalized and just kept going over and over it and thinking there was something wrong with me so I think 
having a different voice going into schools and people who are much older or the same age shows young people that although you're saying those things like you could really affect someone um if you know that like they're finding it difficult and also we had gave awareness training around the likes of self-esteem and suicide and took many of the young people on to help build their self-esteem and understand who they are and loads of them have come so far so I think we need to have resilience training as part of the curriculum uh, but also with outreach sessions the young people seemed to really enjoy them because then it was like they went home and reflected on who they were as a person. And as a final question I suppose Maureen how do you think your work as a mental health nurse mental health in general has changed throughout the pandemic do you think people take mental health more seriously have have the kind of conditions that people are dealing with in terms of their mental health changed what what's the story of the pandemic when it comes to mental health um the pandemic obviously um with recent research that was out um has obviously shown that many people suffered during the pandemic as a result of like isolation those who are in poverty um were suffering a bit more with the whole introduction of the universal credit scheme and those pressures, I think, were sort of exaggerated then during the pandemic because people were very much just put to say, put on waiting lists, made stay at home, obviously because of coronavirus. But with, with the isolating, I found it really difficult to keep up my resilience. But I found that routine was so vital in keeping my mental health stable. Um, my story, your story, had drop-in sessions all over video. Um, weekly and then sometimes twice a week depending on the needs of the young person because obviously they were predisposed to yeah. their like illness or disorders getting worse so I think it definitely affected it negatively but also I would say it affected me positively because it made me stop overworking like I was working too much because I was obviously a student nurse and I was on placement and I was doing like a couple of shifts extra um, to try and get you know a bit of money because we get a free yeah. and it made me pause in my life and say I went into this and I take a step back so I started investing in my like health and exercising again and that's had a huge improvement in my mental state I'd say. Okay so pros and cons I suppose like all of these yeah. things. Mairead, thank you so much. Congratulations uh, and enjoy the next steps of your journey. Mairead Ryan there, who has just been named Nursing Student of the Year, uh, who has just graduated as well from Mental Health Nursing course here at QUB. Mairead, thank you so much for being with us. Well, that is us for this week on The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much to all of my guests for giving up their time to chat to me this evening. Thank you to the amazing team here at The Scoop, especially Odrin Johnson for editing all of tonight's show. Delighted to say that this week, Queen's Radio has been nominated for six awards at the National Student Radio Awards. Four of them are for our work here at The Scoop. So thank you to you, our audience, for supporting us every single step of the way. And don't forget to follow our weekday shows on Mondays, the, the Good News Scoop, on Tuesdays, the Trendy Scoop, on Wednesdays, the Sporty Scoop, Thursdays, the Eco Scoop, Fridays, the Mental Health Scoop, and we're back here on Sundays with The Scoop on Sunday. Remember, you can send us your stories too. Get in touch by emailing thescoop at queensradio.org. Thank you so much for your company this evening. My name is Thomas Copeland. This has been The Scoop on Sunday. Night-night.